0: Yeah, just a real quick uh on that uh mission trip. We're we're trying to plan a mission trip to Puerto Rico to still they're still actually working on hurricane cleanup. Um, so if you're interested in that, let me know. I need to kinda know pretty soon. I, I can give you all the information. If you if you let me know I can tell you price and, and time and all of that stuff. But if that's something that's even interesting to you, let me know so I can start to at least get a, a decent gauge on if we have uh you know, enough of a group who wants to go. Okay, turning our attention to God's Word, we are in the book of Mark. We have been in a series uh, in Mark really since Christmas. And we've made a pretty big turning point actually here with this passage. We see Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And so we are on the fast march toward Good Friday and toward Easter. In fact, everything from here on out, it will really be moving very much toward that end. And we've got a fascinating and I think difficult in some ways, but really fruitful passage to be able to look at today. So we are in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Let me give you a quick background. Jesus has just... Come into Jerusalem. He's come in riding on a colt. And the people have laid palm branches on the ground. This is what we typically celebrate at Palm Sunday. They have cried, Hosanna, the king the King in the line of David. He's here to save us. And now Jesus is actually doing what he's called to do in Jerusalem. It's some interesting stuff. So picking up here at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree... In leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit of you again. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking ways to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, it's the fig tree that you cursed and it is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespass. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, you've called us to come and not only to sing your praises, but to also be changed by that singing. And as we come in contact with your word, to be changed. As we come to your table, to be changed. As we come and witness the beauty of baptism, to be changed. You have called us in here that you might do a work in us. We ask that you would do what you have promised to do. I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're really going to ask this morning is this question. What does it mean to have a fruitful spirituality? What does it mean to have a fruitful faith? Uh, A Christian life that is pleasing to God? A Christian life that is actually satisfying and fulfilling? Something that is fruitful, that is meaningful? Well... Jesus, interestingly, uh, has a lot to say about fruitfulness. In fact, all of the Bible does. If you turn to Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the Psalter, it's talking about a tree that's planted by a stream of water. If you're familiar with Psalm 1, you know that this tree that's planted by this stream, God's Word, flourishes, it bears fruit, it grows large and beautiful. Uh, we had an opportunity to see a tree like this, actually, uh, last weekend. We spent a couple of nights camping at Garner State Park, which is a beautiful Texas uh, hill country state park, and the Frio River runs through the park, and there right by the river was the largest cypress tree I've ever seen. In fact, uh, my family, all five of us, tried to see if we could grab hands and circle around the tree, and our ten arms could not get around this tree. It was so large. But next to it, it was really fascinating, right next to this tree was another tree that, that looked equally massive. And from from the standpoint of so standing on this side of it, looking here, it looked like a huge, flourishing, amazing tree. But interestingly, if you went around to the back of the tree, you saw that the, the whole trunk was actually hollowed out. You could stand inside the trunk of this tree, and there was kind of a little peephole. It was the coolest place in the world, like to build a fort, or as my son reminded me, like if you're in an airsoft war, this is where you would want to be, is inside this tree. But as I reflected on it, I thought, you know, that that tree probably doesn't have a whole lot of days left. That tree is on its way to its demise. We read this passage, and you probably picked up on it. Jesus gets pretty fired up. He gets pretty angry in this passage. And you know what Jesus gets fired up about? He gets fired up about things that look really nice on the outside, but are actually empty inside. He gets really angry in this passage about something that looks like it's big and fruitful and flourishing, but inside is actually really empty. Jesus answers this question for us. What does it look like to have a fruitful life? What does it look like to have a fruitful and flourishing church? What does a church look like? His answer is that a flourishing church is one that is enlivened by the gospel. A flourishing Christian life is one that is enlivened from the heart by the gospel. And that pours out into all that we do. And Jesus actually takes us through this description by first showing us what it's not. And so that's kind of how we're going to look at it today. What a flourishing and fruitful Christian life is not first. Then we'll look at what it is. And then we'll look a little bit at how you get it. Okay, What it's not, what it is, how you get it. Let me start just by giving you a little bit of a recap of our story. Because it's a bit of a complex story. Jesus, again, has come into Jerusalem. He's come in riding uh, as the king. People have laid palm branches before him and shouted, Hosanna. And as he's come into Jerusalem, he goes first and he kind of takes a look at the temple. And scopes things out. And then he leaves and they go, he and his disciples, go stay in a town nearby called Bethany. It's like a small town close to the big city. Kind of like New Brothels in San Antonio. So clearly the main point is Jesus loves new brothels. Let's pray. No, that's not the main point. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are staying in this town called Bethany. And in the morning when they get up and they come and they walk from Bethany into Jerusalem, they're coming and they're probably there for Passover, by the way. Passover, the celebration uh, of God's redemption in Exodus and bringing his people out of Egypt and showing these mighty signs and bringing them into the promised land. That's what Passover is celebrating. And every year, this Passover celebration, thousands, thousands of God's people would come and they'd come to Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate Passover. Jesus and his disciples are probably there for Passover. And as they're walking in toward Jerusalem, on their way there, Jesus is hungry, Mark tells us. I love it when, when Mark just inserts these little uh, you know, details of like, hey, remember, Jesus is fully man, and he gets hungry just like you do. And Jesus is hungry, and he goes up to this fig tree, and he wants to pull off a fig, but there's no figs on the tree. And then there's this kind of confusing little comment that Mark says, because it's not the season for figs. Well... Some commentators would say, okay, if they're there for Passover, the real figs would actually bloom in the summer. You'd have nice, big, beautiful figs. But there should be little buds kind of on there that are edible. And Jesus is actually trying to pull one of those buds off and eat it. I don't know if that's the case. It doesn't really matter, honestly. The point is, is that there is a tree that's supposed to have fruit that doesn't. It's all leaves and no fruit. It looks really beautiful from a distance. Everything looks beautiful and flourishing and green. It's got all of these full leaves, but there's no fruit on it. And Jesus is telling His disciples, a tree, a fruit tree with no fruit on it, is not really going to cut it when you're hungry. It's not really going to do the job that it's supposed to do. Alright, pause. Scene change. They get into Jerusalem, and once they get into Jerusalem, they come to the temple. And Jesus starts doing some very interesting things in the temple. He starts picking up tables and turning them over. He's driving out the people who are selling because when they get to the temple, it looks more like kind of a, like a market. Uh, there's animals everywhere. There's money changing hands all over the place. There's buying and selling going on. And Jesus gets very angry. He gets really frustrated. He throws over all of the tables. He drives out the people who are buying and selling. He drives out anybody who's trying to kind of use it as a pass-through. And he says, this is my house, and it's a house of prayer. Get out. Pause. Scene change again. They go back to Bethany. The next morning, they come back in again for Passover celebration. And on the way, they see that same tree. Except now that tree is not just all leaves and no fruit. That tree is no fruit, no leaves, no tree. It is withered and died from the inside. Mark says the roots have dried up and it's a dead tree. Just the day before it was nice and green. Well, what's going on here? What's going on in this passage? What's with the tree and what's with the temple? We'll start with the tree. You know, if you're familiar with with Jesus and his teaching, you'll remember that oftentimes he speaks in parables. Oftentimes he's actually talking in stories. Jesus uses stories to, to make a point. Stories that have a point that he uses for teaching. Well, what's happening actually right now is that the disciples are living inside of a parable. Jesus is acting out a real live parable. His actions are supposed to actually teach them and teach us something. And this is what he wants us to know. Is that religion that is void of the gospel, religion that is not enlivened by the gospel, is just as dead and worthless as a fruit tree with no fruit. Religion that is void of the gospel, that is not enlivened by the gospel from the heart and from the center, is just like a fruit tree that has no fruit, which, by the way, is just as good as dead. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So then what's the deal with the temple? Why is he so frustrated? Where do we see this kind of absence of, of gospel enlivening in the temple? Well, we've got to do a little bit of background work to answer that question. So first of all, remember, Jesus comes in and he sees people buying and selling. They're selling animals and they're exchanging money. It's really not what they're doing that's that big of a deal. People are coming from all over They're coming from all over Israel They're coming even from out of the country And they're coming to Passover And they're coming oftentimes to bring a sacrifice To bring a sacrifice that the high priest would then take And sacrifice for them As a symbol that God is cleansing them of their sins Remember, they're celebrating God's great redemption. His exodus uh, of them, of his people out of Egypt. His giving himself to them. And they're celebrating these things. Well, if you're coming from thousands of miles or hundreds of miles away, you probably don't want to come with your own sheep. Or if you're poor, with your own birds that you've got in a cage that you're going to sacrifice. And so oftentimes people would come and they would buy those animals there in Jerusalem that they would use for sacrifice. And because, uh, because of the world that they lived in, uh, there's a lot of different kind of currency. You, <coughs> excuse me. You also needed to have somebody there that could exchange kind of the coins. You're bringing this kind of money. I've got, we need this kind of money. There needs to be an exchange. So what was going on actually wasn't that big of a deal. People were buying animals to be able to sacrifice them, and they had to oftentimes exchange money. It was the place that they were doing it that was the problem. There was a place that was marked out for this. It was on a Mount of Olives. It was close by the temple. It was a great place for, for this kind of market, for all of this stuff to happen. But where they were doing it was in what's called the Court of the Gentiles. The temple, a big building that had big kind of outside walls, and the biggest kind of area outside, the biggest court outside the temple, was called the Court of the Gentiles, it was the place that those who weren't Jews could actually come and pray and seek the Lord. They could actually come and pray and investigate those who were wondering, you know, who is this God of the Hebrews? He seems to be pretty cool. Something seems to be very interesting here. I wonder what it is. And they could actually come and seek the Lord there. And they could pray. In fact, I... <clears throat> sorry. Sorry. What Jesus actually says uh, to the Pharisees, or to the scribes here, is interesting. Because what, what he says is you've made uh, this, you know, this is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, he's quoting from Isaiah 56. If you've got a Bible, flip over there with me. Isaiah 56. If you don't, you're welcome to just to just listen. But I want you to hear the way that Isaiah talks about the nations. About those who are not... Uh, who are not Jewish. Listen, just listen here, starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Interesting illusion as well. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and the daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. Those who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, the job of God's people then and the job of God's people now is to both move toward and attract those who are outside. That's always been the case. God has made human beings to reflect His glory in the world. God made his people He called Abraham and said I'm going to make you into a nation That blesses others He told Israel that they were going to be A kingdom of priests Jesus has told us that we are to be A light to the world That we are to go out and to make disciples That is the job of God's people To bring in others And so it wasn't actually the things That, uh, that the religious leaders Had established there in that time That was the wrong, that was the wrong thing to do It was what they had displaced They had brought all of the activity of religion into the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and seek the Lord. And they had just displaced them, kind of saying, we we have no more room for you. We have no more place for you. That's fascinating. There's a connection between the way that we actually reach out to others and what we think about our own hearts. Our call to worship this morning was from Deuteronomy 10. I want to read you a little bit more of Deuteronomy 10. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but just listen here. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. And now listen to this. So you love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you hear what, what God is saying there through Moses? You are supposed to love the outsider because you are outsiders. Remember, you used to be outsiders. You were in bondage and the Lord has freed you. You have been nobodies and the Lord has made you somebody. You have been dead, Paul says in Ephesians, and the Lord has made you alive. There's a deep connection between our understanding of what has happened in our lives and how we then reach out to others. And so if we don't see ourselves as needy people who've been outsiders, who've been rescued by Jesus and brought into his family, if we don't see ourselves that way, we will inevitably not want to see others come in either. It's exactly what had happened in Jesus' time. Those religious leaders had lost the message of the good news that God rescues. They're there for Passover, friends. They're there for Passover. They're there to celebrate God's rescue. That's the whole reason that they're gathered. And they had lost the center of it. They had replaced the need for God. They had replaced the understanding of their own lostness with the mechanics of religion. And so they had replaced a house of prayer with a market with a place to do business. That kind of substitution is really kind of the heart of what sin is, isn't it? You could define sin that way, that it's, that it's us substituting ourselves for God. That we are putting ourselves in God's place somehow. It could be that we are substituting ourselves for Him by doing all of the right things feeling like we've got all the boxes checked, feeling like we've kind of accomplished all the things that we need to, and so we're substituting ourselves for God because we don't really need Him anymore. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that that's actually the way that the religious leaders of the time functioned. They had substituted their own activity for who God was supposed to be, the need that they were supposed to feel in their hearts. Now, you can substitute yourself for God in the other way, too. By saying, well, I'm the one who's going to make all the rules. I'm the one who's the final authority in my life. I'm the one who's going to set my direction and my course. That's substituting yourself for God, too. Fascinating, isn't it? That you can look really religious or really irreligious and have the same problem, the same need. And it's substituting yourself for God. Now, the beauty, of course, of the gospel is that what the gospel is, is God substituting himself for us. It's God saying, I will take your sin upon myself, and you will have my righteousness. I will put myself in your place so that you do not have to bear the consequences for your actions. That is substitution of God for us, and that is the beautiful good news of the gospel, friends. In fact, to become a Christian is to, is to accept those things in your heart. To say, I know I need Jesus and I see and receive that He has substituted Himself for me. That's what it means to become a Christian. If you've never heard those words, come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. But it's also what it means to grow as a Christian. To see more and more every day the substitution that God has made on our behalf. And to cling more deeply to it. That is a heart that is enlivened by the gospel. And that is a life that is powered by that gospel fuel. Alright, we've, we, we've seen now what it's not. We've seen what, what fruitful, faithful Christian living in the fruitful church, we've seen what it's not. Let, let's talk just a minute about what it is. And, and here's the word that I'm going to use. It's a very simple word that's very powerful. And it's just this. It's growth. Growth fruitful, faithful, meaningful Christian faith and a church that reflects those things should be marked by growth. Marked by the Spirit being at work in our hearts and that actually pouring out a fruit in us. So if you are an angry person, at some point the people around you should be saying, you know, he's just not as angry as he used to be. I don't have to tiptoe around him like I used to. I don't have to kind of try and always figure out what his mood is and how I'm going to navigate that. He's just softer, easy to be around. Something must be going on in his heart. If you're a detached person, at some point in your life, the people around you should be saying, you know what, dad's just a little more available these days. He's more emotionally Available. I can actually say things to him that I, that I used to not be able to say. Something must be going on in his heart. If you are a self-centered person, the people around you should at some time be saying, you know what, she actually listens more than she used to. She doesn't talk over me like she used to do. Something must be going on in her heart. Something must be happening. And friends, if you're a Christian... The people that are around you, your neighbors, your friends, they should be saying, you know, there's something about this family that I just can't get my hands around. Because they, they love each other well, they love me well, they do so in a way that oftentimes put them, puts them at risk. I'm having a hard time putting them in a box. They don't really fit kind of what my culture says you're supposed to be. And they don't really fit what I think kind of, you know, a Christian is supposed to be. I don't really know what to do with them, but I'm intrigued. And so maybe this Jesus that they worship is worth me investigating. That's growth in us. Now let me just say, it doesn't happen overnight. Okay? You don't get a cypress tree that you can't get your arms around. Uh, You don't get that overnight. It happens over a long, long time. The Lord works on us and He changes us. And so it's helpful even to think back on your life and to look back in 5 and 10 and 15 year chunks and say, what has the Lord been doing? How has He been changing me? How has He growing me? Alright, that's what it is. We're going to close just quickly with how you get there. How you do it. So, we've seen what it's not, now what it is, then what it is, now how do you get it? Well, this is... Really, the way that Jesus answers His disciples in the last few verses is where we're going to get these things. Now, off the cuff, this actually kind of sounds like a non-sequitur. Jesus has, has really proclaimed this, this incredible parable, and He's, he's, uh, he's cast you know, condemnation really on the temple, and then He just talks to His disciples about faith and prayer and all these things. What's going on? Well, I think Jesus is actually telling us how to get to that fruitful faith. He's giving us some of the components. And I'm going to summarize it in four ways, and then we're going to close. Uh, This is what he says, is that step one is actually uh, trust in a trustworthy God, and then pray, and do so together, Uh, forgive one another, and celebrate God's forgiveness. Let's go through those really quick. Uh, trust in a trustworthy God The first thing in verse 22 That's out of Jesus' mouth When they kind of are, The disciples are wondering What in the world is going on here And Jesus says Have faith in God Now that sounds really simple but again, oftentimes it's the simple things that are the hardest for us to put in place. Jesus says, at the heart of it, at the heart of you becoming fruitful, is actually faith in God. Now, I love the way that Greek works, because oftentimes you're not sure exactly how to translate it. Uh, this text and the New Testament was written in Greek. And one of the ways that you could actually translate this uh, this phrase... One way is you can say, have faith in God. Another way is that you could actually say, hold on to the faithfulness of God. I like that a lot. Hold on to the faithfulness of God. This is a God who has shown Himself to be faithful, who has shown Himself to be trustworthy, that over and over and over, as His people have left and failed and rejected, He has continually come to them and chased them down and said, I am steadfast. I am trustworthy. Cling to me. That's the foundation for us. That's a great step one. Trust, deep trust in a very trustworthy God. How about the second one? Another simple one. Pray. Pray. Enter into discussion with your Father. The beauty that we've been able to proclaim in baptism and throughout the service is that God really is a good Father. That He has called us to be His children. And like any good father, He wants us to come to Him, to talk to Him, to gather close to Him, and He wants to give us good things. Now, these verses can sometimes be misinterpreted. That Jesus is basically saying... Whatever you want and whatever you ask for, God's going to give it to you. Like God is some vending machine in the sky that we just get to kind of put in our request. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not saying name it and claim it. What he is saying is that God delights in giving good things to his children. See, it would be actually bad parenting if a father gave everything that a petulant child asked for. That's actually bad parenting. What is good parenting is a father who loves his child who wants his child to draw near him and who delights in giving him or her good things. So pray and ask and do it together. Another fun thing that's hidden in the Greek here is that all of these things are actually they're, they're communal. So it's, it's y'all pray. If the Bible were just written in Texan, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Y'all pray. Do it together. You get a great glimpse of that in Acts 2 when you see the new church. They're gathering together and they're sharing their lives together. And guess what they're doing? They're praying together all the time. Here's the third thing. Forgive one another. A fruitful church and a faithful church is a place where forgiveness just kind of hangs in the air. It is just the air that we breathe is forgiveness. There's a way of the world that says, listen, if there's ever conflict or division, what you need to do is kind of gather the troops on your side and get ready for battle. Find the folks that you can kind of get to support you and get ready and geared up for battle because you got to get ready for a fight. That is antithetical to the Bible's message. What Jesus says here is actually faithfulness, fruitfulness, uh, flourishing Christian life is free forgiveness. It is forgiveness that is freely asked for and freely given. It is an environment in which people are forgiving, them, forgiving one another, oftentimes in very difficult ways. And then finally, it's this. The reason that we can forgive one another is that we are celebrating God's forgiveness. I love that Jesus lands here and ends here because it really is the most important. If you want a heart and a life and a church that is enlivened by the gospel, then celebrate God's forgiveness. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Get up in the morning and tell yourself, Jesus has forgiven me. He loves me and cares for me, not because of what I have done, but just because He is loving and gracious. That is the good news that our hearts sometimes have a hard time hearing. So we've got to say it a lot. We've got to preach that good news to ourselves. But if we are founded upon the forgiveness of God, it will change our lives, our communities, our church, our city. That is what fuels us. That is what a fruitful faith looks like. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, just this, this wonderful glimpse that we get Uh, yes, a warning of what a dry and withered faith looks like, but, Lord, also a great glimpse of um, what a church, a community, a heart looks like when it is founded upon the good news of the Gospel, when it is founded upon Your work, when it is founded, Lord, upon You substituting Yourself for us. Lord, will You let that seep into our hearts today? We have a hard time sometimes believing it. But Lord, will You give us faith that we might deeply cling to Your great faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.